Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. If you like what you hear, please follow us and leave a kind review. It really helps. This episode is about Amber Mary Bray, who, along with her boyfriend, Jeffrey Glenn Ayers, murdered her mother. Last week, we left off as Jeffrey purchased a gun from a friend the night prior to Dixie Hollier's murder. If you have not yet listened to part one, stop right now and go listen to it first. We will wait right here for you. You may recall Amber had been lying to her boyfriend Jeffrey, telling him she was abused when she wasn't. She and Jeffrey had been exchanging love letters from hell, where the two of them planned the murders of Amber's mother and younger sister, Amy, so they could get their hands on some money. Amber is a classic booty bumper. She was pretty sure she was about to get away with murder. We also shared some cool trivia about the song Midnight Confession and how it relates to this case. So really, go listen if you haven't already. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. (laughs) Okay, let's get started. On January 15th, Jeffrey purchased a gun from a friend of his. On January 16th, 1996... Jeffrey Ayers entered the home at approximately 4.30 a.m. through the door which Amber had left unlocked for him. He rummaged through her pocketbook and took $18 and her ATM card to support the anticipated claims of burglary, but for some reason that fills me with dread, although I can't confirm why they did this, Jeffrey and Amber woke her mother. That makes no sense. Why would you wake someone up if you're just trying to kill them? You can leave them asleep and it's easier. It... Not to be, you know, cold, but it would be easier. It almost sounds to me like Amber wanted to make sure her mother knew who was doing this. But I could not confirm that. Yeah, I mean, that's the most logical explanation, but that's awful. Then Jeffrey shot her twice in the head. And once in the arm, so I think that was a defensive wound. Mm-hmm. Dixie escaped the bedroom and fled toward the front door where they caught her, pistol whipped her, and stabbed her more than 20 times with knives from the kitchen. Oh, I mean, even for murder, that's a pretty nasty one. Right. Amber's 15-year-old sister, Amy, was awakened by two loud bangs. She jumped out of bed, and Amber, who shared the room with her, was already up. She told her not to leave the bedroom because there was a man out there. Ignoring Amber, she ran into the kitchen to see Jeffrey pistol-whipping her mother, who seemed to be bleeding and was screaming for help. Amy headed for the landline to call 911, and Jeffrey shouted, She has to be stopped! And Amber beat her to the phone and pulled the cord from the wall. Amy tried to get to her mother to intervene, and Amber held her back. At some point, Jeffrey pulled the phone entirely off the wall. That's awful. So Amber was very hands-on with this. Very, very hands-on. Five-year-old Benji also woke up and came out to see what the ruckus was. At trial, Amy stated she was very worried about Benji's long-term well-being if he saw what was going on there. She pulled him into her bedroom and turned on the TV to cover the noise of the murder that was taking place by the front door. Amber joined them in the bedroom. 
and insisted they all stay there. Amy complied, not realizing she was next. According to the San Diego Union Tribune, Ben says he remembers that night. He remembers hearing loud static from the TV. He could hear bits and pieces of what was happening in the other room, but he stayed put as told. That's awful. It I'm is. sure Amy and Benji are probably horribly scarred by this. Oh, I'm sure they are. I can't imagine being Amy and knowing that Amber is still out there. Mm-hmm. A neighbor, upon hearing three gunshots, called 911 just before 5 a.m. The police arrived and found Jeffrey holding Dixie down while stabbing her. As the officers entered the home, Jeffrey threw his hands in the air in surrender. Blood dripping from his hands, he surrendered to the police. He said, okay, you got me. I'm responsible for what happened. I'm fully aware of what I've done. So they probably pre-planned that if they got caught, he would take the fall. Oh, yes. This boy would have done anything for Amber at that point, as you can see. Mm -hmm. The Burbank police say that Amy is only alive because her mother fought for her life, so they didn't have time to kill her. And because the neighbor calling 911 brought the police in time to save Amy's life, but not her mother's. That's awful. Yes. I'm so glad that the neighbor called because it sounds like they were moments away from stabbing Amy. Well, and to be honest, I don't think they would have stopped with Amy. I think they would have realized that Benji needed to go too. Well, he'd seen things. He heard things. Absolutely had seen and heard way too much. Well, according to the LA Times, Amber's dad, aunt, and family friends insisted Amber and Jeffrey were not romantically linked. They couldn't fathom how she could be linked to this crime. Was that after seeing these extensive history of letters specifically describing their relationship? No, they actually hadn't seen that. They had oh. been visiting her in the prison, and she had been crying and telling them how she couldn't eat and she couldn't sleep. Well, like days after the murder, Amber spoke to a family friend who talked about what it was like when she went to visit Amber in jail. She stated that Amber insisted that Jeffrey was not her boyfriend and that she had nothing to do with the murder. This was a quote from her. This is the first time the family has seen him. None of us recognize him. That's crazy. I mean, maybe that's the first time they've seen him, but how do they think he got in? I'm not sure what they were thinking. I'm not sure where their theory went, but they were sure that Jeffrey did this all on his own. Amber was insisting that she might know who the boy was, but he was definitely not her boyfriend. Compare that to the wedding list that her friends were seeing. Her mom was aware that Jeffrey was around. Amy talks about Jeffrey. She's aware that he was around. But the people who were peripheral to her life were isolated. She tends to compartmentalize people. So these people know this about my life. These people know this about my life. But no one really knows everything that I'm saying about my life. Okay. Well, I mean... If, she, if Amy hadn't lived, maybe that would have been a good defense, but Amy's 15. She knows what's going on, and she can testify that we all know exactly who Jeffrey is. And that and those love letters are Amber's downfall. Miss mm-hmm. Chang countered what Dixie's neighbor had said. She insisted that the will preparation had something to do with the type of chronic illness that 
Dixie had, not fear regarding her daughter. I have wondered if Dixie did find some of these love letters. Mm-hmm. Parents look for things when their kids are going through hard times. And it may be that Amber's mom saw these love letters. And if Amber's on the phone talking about it all the time, she wasn't hiding it hardly at all. She was putting it in writing. She was making phone calls. I'm sure... What year did this happen? 96. Okay, maybe she wasn't texting about it, but it doesn't sound like she was discreet. No. So I'm sure that Dixie did have some inkling. I can't imagine her mom not having an inkling and not wondering, oh, is this real? Is this a phase? This is my oldest daughter. Maybe all kids say things like this. But we don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Sonia Chang also confirmed that Dixie was nothing but the best of mothers, that she worked hard to support the kids. Everyone started talking right after the murder, but they stopped upon the attorney's advice. So I think the attorney knew fairly early on about the love letters Mm. and wanted the dad and everyone else to just stop talking before they messed up her case. Well, yeah, you don't want everyone to realize that this girl is a big liar and a convincing liar before you get to trial. Right. Amber was in jail, but how did everyone else handle mourning and the loss of Dixie? Dixie Lee Hollier had a large funeral mass with hundreds of friends, family, and workmates present to mourn her passing. Amber tried hard to get permission to attend the funeral, but her request was denied, with the court citing security and the objections of at least one family member. I'm not surprised. I think someone should object. I completely agree. I would not want her there. The LA Times reported the funeral to be poignant and peaceful, as funerals should be. Her ex-husband played a tribute to her on his trumpet, starting with Amazing Grace and ending with When the Saints Go Marching In. Dixie's younger sister offered a eulogy, describing her as a free spirit who sometimes walked to a different drum beat. Dixie was a flower child turned businesswoman by necessity who, as a devoted mother, lived modestly as she continuously put the needs and interests of her children first. She loved them dearly and was deeply devoted to them and their well-being. It was a different story than what Amber had been feeding to Jeffrey, that of a selfish and abusive mother who, as per everyone but Amber, had never existed. Amber's church friends showed up to offer their condolences at Dixie Hollier's funeral. The gaming friends were nowhere to be found. It's really hard to hear what the murderer says about the parents that we know isn't true. So I'm glad that her family got to have that goodbye and talk about who she really was. Me too. I think that was really important. Why don't we talk about the trials? So the trials were held concurrently, which we all know means at the same time. Amber's was held about one day ahead of Jeffrey's. So would they have the same jury? No, they would not have the same jury. It would be at the same time, but in different places. Different judge, different jury. Okay. So Jeffrey thought he had it made when it came to trial. He really believed Amber and her allegations of abuse. So at trial, he insisted that he'd only killed Amber's mom because she was abusing Amber, thinking it was kind of like defense of another, and so that made it okay. 
his attorney claimed he hadn't planned on anyone dying and he'd only agreed to the plot because he feared his girlfriend was going to kill herself. So he thought that shooting her three times and stabbing her 22 to 24 times and pistol whipping her was going to leave her alive? (laughs) Well, I think the argument was more like when he showed up that night, he didn't plan to kill anyone. He probably was trying to bring it down from first degree to second degree got or maybe it. manslaughter. Got it. By saying, well, when he got there, he was just trying to reassure Amber and make her feel better, and then things got out of hand. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. But his attorney was fighting an uphill battle there because that would require the jury to ignore evidence of a well-thought-out and very deliberate plan if they wanted to find him guilty of just manslaughter. Oh, uh-huh. Because the prosecutor entered the love letters into evidence, which showed... That it was very well thought out, that he did intend to go there to to murder her. And then it wasn't just, I'm saving my girlfriend. They were there for the money. Those letters made it very clear that he was looking forward to a payday. Oh, yeah. They were definitely looking for the money. Mm Mm-hmm. So, as you can guess, his defense didn't work very well. (laughs) So, Amber, her trial started earlier. A 10-man and 2-woman jury found Amber guilty of first-degree murder with enhancements of lying in wait and murdering for financial gain and conspiracy to commit murder. Good. I think they came to the right decision. I think they did their job. Mm Mm-hmm. And a separate jury found Jeffrey guilty of the same. His jury found that he had planned to ambush and kill Dixie and Amber's younger sister, Amy. And Amber, as we've seen so many times burst into tears when the verdict was read. Right, because the pity she has is only for herself. That part always makes me so angry because they can sit there completely calm listening to the prosecutor describe the way that their own mother was stabbed to death and she knew how much it hurt, how horrible it was because she was there and she only has tears for herself. Anyway, Amber's attorney immediately appealed which temporarily suspended her sentencing date. So then Jeffrey was sentenced first, which was a good foreshadowing for what Amber was going to have. So if she was paying attention, she knew what was coming. And he was sentenced to life without parole. Mm. The LA Times reports that prior to sentencing, Amber was interviewed by a member of the pre-sentence investigation team. Oh, so so how does that work? What does the pre-sentence investigator do? Um, so sentencing is a little different than trial and they can take into account factors like if you had a hard childhood if you have any mental disabilities if you have um just all the circumstances of your whole life that might affect what happened so mitigating circumstances yes okay usually they're the mitigating circumstances and then of course aggravating things like a long criminal history Mm -hmm. so according to this report amber had no criminal record which is good But this very experienced pre-sentence investigation team member, someone who's interviewed countless criminals, noted that Amber was a very callous individual who was a serious threat to the community. I would say that the judge probably considered that as an aggravating circumstance. (laughs) Almost certainly. And that is not the sort of thing, certainly not all of our cases have a comment like that from an experienced Investigator. Right. Not everyone who is a murderer is called callous by an expert. So they are found guilty, mm-hmm. and then they do yet another investigation, and mm-hmm. that's the pre-sentence investigator. 
and the pre-sentence investigator looks at the person. The investigator examines the person through interviews or research mm -hmm. to find mitigating circumstances and aggravating circumstances for the judge to consider. And then the attorneys are also trying to add to that with mitigating and aggravating circumstances. Yeah, so it's kind of like if you were buying a house, the pre-sentence investigator would be the person who goes through and does the inspection. Okay. They're a third party who goes in and says, well, I've done my research and this is what I think of the situation. And then the two parties argue about what that means. Okay, so that person bears a lot of weight in what the judge decides. Yeah, because they're kind of a less biased third party. Okay. With a lot of experience. Um, so after her appeal was denied, Amber attended her sentencing hearing, um, as almost everyone does, and as she sat with her defense counsel, head on the table and sobbing, her family rallied in her support. Her dad said, I don't believe she's guilty, but he didn't offer anything to shore up his claim. And I take his opinion a little less seriously because we know he wasn't in the house very often. Um, it doesn't sound like he saw the kids very often, even though he did keep in touch. Yeah, he seemed to care about them, but he wasn't a real presence in the home. Right. What really surprises and honestly upsets me is that her younger sister, Amy, the one who Amber planned on killing next mm -hmm. and had, you know, in the bedroom conveniently waiting to be murdered. Right. Amy testified that she'd had problems with her sister but also testified that she believed Amber to be innocent, despite her lived experience and the landslide of evidence presented at trial. I kind of think that I understand what Amy was thinking somewhat. Amy was getting her information from the attorney. Amber's attorney was, of course, working for Amber and saying to her family, oh, she won't be found guilty. She didn't shoot her. She didn't stab her. She was in the bedroom with the other kids. She's innocent. Mm -hmm. She was establishing a position. And that's one of the problems that I have with our court system is not just the person who has committed the crime, but also younger siblings who don't understand how the law works or what the law is. They listen carefully to an attorney who bears a lot of weight for them. Mm -hmm. And they believe what they say. And I sometimes think that the attorneys... They do need to advocate for their client, but they need to remember that their clients are very young mm -hmm. because I think that impacts treatment later on. I think Amber's thinking, nope, I really didn't do it. My attorney says I didn't do it. I sat in court and listened to my attorney say I didn't do it. So I think she, in treatment, she's probably saying, well, I don't know why they're trying to get me to do this and this and this because I didn't do it because I heard my attorney say I didn't do it. That's not a fault of the attorney. The attorney is doing her job here. Mm -hmm. It is the fault of a system that is talking to kids. Yeah. And that's, I don't know how you could solve that, but that is one thing that I think turns into a big concern when you're trying to treat these kids after they're convicted, after they're sent to prison. Well, I think Amy being surrounded by all of these adults in her family who she trusted saying, no, no, Amber didn't do it. You were there, Amy. She didn't have a gun. She didn't have a knife. Yeah, she ends up almost gaslit mm -hmm. and not believing what she saw. 
for a long time, the courts would say, oh, the boy will go to prison for life and the girl will get out in three years because of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So I think the courts finally got it right. The courts said, if you instigate it, Mm -hmm. if you plan it, if you let the boy in, you're just as guilty as he is. Yeah, which I think common sense would say, if two people get together and plan to kill someone and both of them do things to make that murder happen, the cause for the murder is both of them. Right. Even if only one of them stabbed. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's one thing that is working right with the courts now. But the kids are a little bit behind because the kids aren't learning the law. The kids are listening to family and attorneys. So I think I understand why Amy thought that an injustice had been done regardless of her being there. Yeah, that makes sense. In response to her father's and sister's denials of the evidence, the judge said, I do not believe this was a miscarriage of justice. It's a tragic case, but the evidence is clear. Amber Bray and Jeffrey Ayers killed her for the insurance money. Miss Bray was the moving force behind this crime. She has been convicted of a vicious crime of killing her mother, butchering her mother. I think the judge was right. Those are strong words. But it was a vicious murder, and she was the driving force. Yes, she was. So Amber received a sentence which was identical to Jeffrey's, life without parole, which only seems fair. They did the same crime. They should get the same punishment. I agree. Today, Amber sits in the California prison system, as does Jeffrey. I guess they can share that future together affordably now. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, they did end up in the same place. So, where's Amy today? After the murders, Amy didn't move in with her dad. She moved in with the family of a friend after the murders. Okay. Which is, I think, another indicator that dad was not a full-time parent. Because usually, after one parent dies, you move in with the other, not with your friend's family. Right. And I think it's nice that he showed up for his daughter for Mm -hmm. her trial. I think it's nice that he advocated heavily for his daughter for her trial. Mm -hmm. But after the murder, I thought him going public with, that's not her boyfriend, we don't recognize him was a little crazy. He wouldn't have recognized any of her boyfriends. Yeah. I mean, if you don't live there, you miss a lot. If you don't see them very often, you miss even more. Well, and if you have a daughter who is compartmentalizing and telling lies, you're going to even miss more. (laughs) That's true. He probably missed just almost everything. Right. Anyway, back to Amy. So... Amy, the teenage girl who tried to save her mother and tried to shelter her younger brother from the horrors that broke out in his home, grew up to be a forensic psychologist. Um, Yeah, I think that's... She probably has a lot of unique insights, but she doesn't live in California anymore. Okay. She's married and appears to be very happy with her life, and I think that's all the information we're going to share about her. Okay. What Um, about Ben? So Benji grew up to go by Ben. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, he can't remember a lot from that night, but he's pieced it together using the coroner's report and the internet. Yeah. I mean, I think our impulse is we all want him to be sheltered from it, but I think if you were there, you would be so curious and so... It was a formative event in his life. I'm not surprised he wants to know everything about it that he can. 
I agree. I I think that you do have to piece it together as part of healing and probably for him as part of growing up mm-hmm. and just try to understand. So he he lost both of his sisters and his mother all at the same time. After Dixie's murder, he was moved separately from Amy and she went to live with one of her friend's families and he went to live with an aunt and an uncle where he was eventually adopted. Oh, that's sad. Amy worked really hard to protect him, and then she never really got to see him again. Yeah, they didn't get to be raised together, which I think is sad. And Amy said that it was really hard to have lived through that experience together, but then to not have each other afterward to talk about what had happened. Oh, that's heartbreaking. They really needed that time together. Yeah, they did. But she also said that she's proud of her brother and the hard work he invested in going through this horrific loss. Mm-hmm. So I think they have a relationship now. But it would be really hard. Ben's childhood was a little bit hard. He was adopted by family, but his new parents, but they didn't really bond very well. He and his new parents had a lot of grieving. But Ben became angry and he felt isolated. By the time he was seven, just two years later, he he came to the full realization of what had happened. Mm. And nothing helped him cope well with the monumental loss. I um, can see that. Yeah, I think that would be... He's so young, I don't know how you would possibly be able to handle that. Well, imagine being five years old, having your mother murdered there in the home where you are, and then being placed with your aunt, who is trying to grieve that mm-hmm. same death. She doesn't really have the emotional space to help you no matter how much she loves you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised that it was a really rough couple years there for all of them. Ben's new parents tried everything and even sent him to residential treatment, hoping to get him the help he needed. But nothing really helped until the day he decided to try his hand at wrestling. Wrestling? I know. But his coach, Perry Watson, took him under his wing at school. And this relationship eventually led to Ben moving in with Mr. Watson's family, where he had a mom, a dad, and siblings. When Ben turned 18, he got a tattoo that bears the date his mother was murdered. A reminder not only of his mother, but of the scars he bears as a result of those love letters from hell, and how he has managed to overcome his own demons that arose from it all. Mm. Yeah, it was really hard for the siblings, both Amy and Ben. Right. But it looks like Ben attended college and is working to get his adult life started, just like everyone else his age. Yeah. It looks like he finally has his breath back. Oh, good. When it comes to love letters, never accept a love letter from someone that is not filled with love and only love. Rockwell Kent, an American painter, once sent a brief love letter to his wife, Frances. Dear Frances, let us make and keep our love more beautiful than any love has ever been before. Forever, dearest one, thy Rockwell. May all your love letters be so beautiful. Thanks for listening, and we hope you learned something. Feel free to join our discussions on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter using Parasite Podcast, 
or by writing to us at parasitepodcast at parasite.org. And if you like our podcast, please subscribe to the Parasite Podcast and tell your friends about us. Yes, please do. We'd like to thank Jade Brown for our theme music and Murderpedia, John Steinman and the LA Times, Law and Issues mailing list, the San Diego Union Tribune, and Rock Asteria for a variety of information and photos we used for this show. You can see photos at Parasite.org. Just click on the Parasite podcast once you get to the website. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye now. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.